Okay, we are live. Hi, this is William Ramsey. Welcome to William Ramsey Investigates on today's show. I have a very special guest, returning guest. His name is Terry Wolf. We talked earlier this month about his book, Fire in the Rabbit Hole. And I saw that he had written a book before that title, and we're going to discuss that today. Full title is Maybe Everyone is Wrong, Revelations, Conspiracy, in the Kingdom of Heaven. That was published in 2020. It has a lot of reviews. A lot of people have read it. It has like a 155 star reviews on American Amazon, but it talks about kind of a perplexing, maybe some people are perplexed by it, but by the book of Revelation, uh, the book that was given to John the Apostle on the Isle of Patmos, the jail island, the, the Roman Empire jail island. And uh, you can see Terry Wolf's stuff and material and contact, contact him at his website. Wolfpox.com, W-O-L-F-P-O-X.com. But again, the book we're going to talk about today is Maybe Everyone is Wrong, Revelations, Conspiracy, and the Kingdom of Heaven. So, Terry Wolf, welcome back to the show. Thank you very much for having me back. I really enjoyed talking about Fire in the Rabbit Hole last time, uh, to actually be able to get into some of the meat of of that idea, the theory of where we are. And, and that book was a follow-up to this one. So this one sort of uh, lays out the big picture of revelation, history, what what has been happening in the last 2,000 years of Christianity, prophetically speaking, and where we are in it now. And then Fire in the Rabbit Hole is more of a zoom-in focus on just today and what we can look forward to in the near future. Um, and so this is sort of the bigger picture that informs the other book. Right. So this is kind of the baseline of the, the other book today. But you said you're you mentioned in the introduction your position on Revelation. And there's multivariate positions. We can get into that. But it the book of Revelation is the most intricately designed puzzle in the history of the world. Why did you say that? Well, because even, you know, John didn't know what he was writing. Prophecy in general in the Bible is meant to be cryptic it's meant to unfold and only be really understood in hindsight and there's so many ways you can interpret it people have obviously and uh you know when you start looking at very specific choices of wording of terms and then how they're used throughout the book it is like a puzzle like they give you something and then it doesn't tell you what to do with it. And then later on, suddenly you see somewhere else where it might fit. And so people have gone. It, I mean, I'm, if anyone is interested in Revelation, you've probably seen some sort of timeline chart. That's sort of the common thing everyone sees is these timelines. I went and looked at, I didn't want to write a book about Revelation. I really didn't. I wanted to just go and I figured with the internet, somebody would have made a better theory already than the ones I heard growing up before the internet. I'm like, you know, there's a bunch of smart people. This is revelation. And look at all the crazy things that are happening in society. I'm sure people have improved and used all of the information available on online encyclopedias and all these things and seeing how it all fits together really hasn't. It's actually very, it was very disappointing for me to go and do a big deep dive into revelation. And then I figured, okay, well, what happens if you start from scratch again and you say, I don't assume anybody has this figured out. That's why it's called maybe everyone is wrong because it just starts with that idea. What if everybody before who did this big study of Revelation was missing something? And now with the internet, 
you know, that's the, we have the opportunity now to go back and understand so much, so quickly, different translations, the Hebrew, the Greek, everything. We have all of the resources now. Right. And you so, mentioned, just sorry to interrupt, but you mentioned some interesting sites that I had never heard of, Eastward Bible Program and Bible Hub. So people can do this as well. They can follow what your conclusions are, what conclusions you reached by going back and looking at the text themselves. So there are, yeah. you're right, there are incredible, power, powerful programs available to people. Yeah. yeah, and we have the hindsight, the, the benefit of hindsight as well to see that a bunch of interpretations can't be true because their predictions didn't come true. Their, their analysis wasn't good enough. They, they missed something. So we're kind of standing on the shoulders of giants, so to speak, or I guess you could say we're just have that benefit of hindsight. And so my thinking was we're going into a very mysterious dark time right now. I mean, that's, you don't need to, you know, even believe in the Bible to, to know that. And, you know, how do we make sense of things? Where are we? And one of the things I wanted to try to avoid, or, or I should say prevent, I was hoping to prevent, is sort of this great discouragement that I feel coming on in Christianity. People getting paranoid and, you know, especially the questions of the rapture, the Antichrist, the mark of the beast. These are some of the biggest topics today. Uh, you know, what's going to happen if so-and-so gets power and then something kicks off in Israel and then suddenly you have this cascading effect and we know that Israel and the third temple and all of these things. I grew up hearing about the differences between sort of the Zionist view where everything revolves around Israel and, and that's the main thing we should be concerned about versus sort of this futurist dystopian sci-fi point of view. And it's all there in Revelation. It's it's waiting to be discussed more intelligently. I think what I do, I have a chapter here called Judging Interpretations. You know, I want to make use of the material in a way that I didn't think other people were. They were, you, you watch those timelines that people put together, the seven-year timeline that everyone loves to do. They're mixing everything around. They're taking the third seal because the, Revelation, for those who don't know, is set up with a book, a prophetic book within the book that it talks about that has seven seals on it. And Jesus breaks one seal at a time, and then a bunch of stuff happens, and then it breaks another seal, and another stuff happens. Eventually, you get to seven trumpets, and then each trumpet happens in a very specific order. And then finally, there's seven bowls or vials that are poured out one at a time. So you can't take a trumpet and put it before a seal or a you know there's a very specific order that everything happens and it's like numbered there's nothing else in the bible like it you know you can go to daniel or ezekiel or isaiah or something and these prophecies are all mixed together right. here in Revelation, i call it i call it i call it conspiracy smack when they just jumble all of them together and it's like i you've got i'm already confused like i I actually have a lot of those conversations still. Like I went through a phase. Uh, 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 sorry, prophecy smack is actually the better word. But I go. I went through a phase where I tried to figure out the prophecies and stuff. I was like, it's pretty. Hard, I went to Daniel. prophecy conferences. I've been to a bunch of them, which is 
not what it sounds like. It's not guys pretending to be prophets. It's a conference where people get together and discuss prophecy and, and try to analyze it. I went to a bunch of those. They're very interesting. You know, pe some people focus on sort of the uh, prophetic fulfillment of the feasts of the Old Testament and how the, you know, how it's going to be in the future once Jesus comes back and sets up his kingdom or all these nice things. And then there's obviously a very heavy conspiracy theory side of it and stuff. So it's, it's an interesting mix and I enjoyed being there, but you would just see people sort of spitballing. Okay. So, you know, here, this, this aligns with that. The, the second seal happens at the same time as the fifth trumpet. And I'm just like, who gave you permission to do that? Like if I was going to write a book where, like, let's say this book, there's chapter numbers. You can't just read the last thing and say that this happens before that one. Like stories happen in order. This revelation is the only book in the entire, or the only major prophecy in the entire Bible that is so clearly structured. So that was the basis, was saying, I think we can do better I might be wrong. I do not claim that I have the final best interpretation there will ever be, but I think I am far ahead of sort of these traditional views that disrespect the structure of it. They jump all over, and often they just try to um, ignore the troublesome parts of it. And whereas I leaned into those parts and be like, that is where we're missing something, and we, it still needs to be fleshed out. And just to let people know, modern Christianity is very much influenced by the book of Revelation. It's influenced by all the different parts of the New Testament and Old Testament. But this whole notion of tribulation, pre-trib, post-trib, there's been just massive discussions. It's part of pop Christianity, too. So there's a lot that needs to be uh, kind of clarified by this, this book so that people can kind of have proper theological a, positions. Yeah. There's just a moral... I think that there's a moral worldview that is missing once you understand what Revelation is talking about. In prophecy in general, there's Old Testament prophecies that keep overlapping with it all as well, because those prophecies haven't been fulfilled yet either. So we're still waiting for some of those. Like, for example, just, you know, why does it seem, from a Christian point of view, like Satan is winning? And why it seems like we're losing? And why does it seem like you know, terrible things are happening. If you know your history, you know about the persecutions. And it's like, you can despair at that. You can think the God's plan isn't going right. Or sort of the ca traditional Catholic point of view is that we have to fight harder. We have to wage actual wars. You need a crusade. You need to stand up and fight for Christianity in some sort of physical way because we're losing and there's a there's a danger of prophecy not happening there's a danger that god loses in the end if we don't mobilize and vote the right way and you know uh, protect our land from invaders or something like that that's a very traditional sort of uh, catholic orthodox kind of point of view and so also what i wanted to do is address that and say if this is true, then it's Jesus Christ sitting in heaven deciding when this stuff happens and that it has to happen. It's not something we're supposed to despair at. It is actually just a fulfillment of this prophecy, this timeline. And it takes longer than anyone ever thought. 
Even Jesus Christ himself says that he doesn't know the timing of it all. Only the Father knows. And so it's one of the greatest mysteries in the world. And now, at this point, I feel like we're so far along, and I make an argument for why, like, that's what the bulk of the book is for explaining what has happened already, according to this prophecy. The rise of the Roman Catholic Church, the merging of Christianity with the Roman Empire, um, sort of the, the abomination that that creates, uh, the phases that it went through, all of these things, you know, I could I could get into the details of it, but yeah, it, yeah, it yeah. helps to it helps to frame why history and Christian history seems to be so messed up as well. So uh, let's start with this question of the seven sealed book. You have four seals; those are the four horsemen. Everyone talks about the four horsemen of the apocalypse. We have this idea that there is a final crazy period at the end of history when all hell breaks loose and you have the antichrist shows up and there's a mark of the beast and the four horsemen are unleashed. And that's sort of just a big metaphor for war and famine and these types of things. We've that's a very pop culture understanding of revelation. You know, we, we think we would recognize when revelation starts happening, right? That's sort of the basic idea is that right. like there's know, a set time, seven how, years. Boom, yeah, like, here's how this. could we miss it? You know, if, Obviously, it'll be it's obvious like, to us. Yeah, like there's going to be a big sign in the sky. Revelation <laughs> starts now. Bing, like a countdown or something. Yeah, and then start your stopwatches because it's exactly this chart, this timeline that we're going to recognize. And my argument is that that, first of all, it doesn't make sense because deception is going to be a huge part of it, and it wouldn't be so obvious. There's like most of the world is supposed to be deceived by the events, but then. So, like, for example, the first seal talks about a rider coming on a white horse. It says that he has power to conquer, but it doesn't say anything about waging war particularly. Um, it says that a crown was given to him and so on. Uh, it's, it's a pretty short verse. And then it moves on to the second seal breaking. And you're like, okay, so that... Clearly, that's not a long event. That's not a major event. Well, I, I believe that takes up about, you know, 400 years <laughs> of history. Um, that's the rise of, that's Constant, That's Constantine the Great. He is the, the one that initiates the, the breaking of the seal. He receives a vision from, in, according to history, mainstream history, he receives a vision in the sky of a big burning cross. And underneath the cross is written, with this sign, you will conquer. And so he paints the cross on the Roman shields, and he starts to have more and more victories, military victories. He didn't understand anything about the gospel. He didn't understand anything about Jesus. He just saw this sign. He believed it was a god. He was a pagan, so he accepted that there's many gods. That I think he was a Mithraite, right? Mithraism? Yeah, it so he he already worshipped the sun, and and so for the idea that he the idea that a Roman emperor receives a divine vision from God is actually very plausible in the Roman pagan point of view. So he just thinks this isn't a god of the cross that he's going to start worshiping, and guess what? He starts to see that empirically this is true. He starts to get more victories when he 
follows this and he uses this sign of the cross everywhere. Well, to the Romans, the sign of the cross is the sign of them being able to execute criminals. It's not a Christian symbol. It's a symbol of murdering people who oppose Rome. And so you have this massive prophetic event happening there where you can just accept it as sort of this Catholic dogma sort of point of view that there's some sort of you know, church fathers and it all happened very organically and they try to make it sound like this is, it didn't really start with Constantine, but this is a huge event that changed his life and it changed all of history. And it establishes, and it, it, you know, if you fast forward, it establishes the papacy, it establishes Roman clergy as being basically equal to governments and why is the horse white? Well, the Pope always wears white. You know, it, it is the color of the Pope. And what is his job? His job is to be the conqueror of the world on a spiritual level. That's official. That's what they actually are supposed to do, is they're supposed to unite all of mankind into this Roman thing. And it's like, okay, that's an interpretation. Maybe, you know, it's an interesting connection, but maybe it's not uh, enough, you know. Well, then you get the idea of the second rider, is red and it has a sword and it starts to conquer it can make other nations have war with each other if you if you read it it says that it, it has the power to take away peace from among the nations i believe that's uh charlemagne the great you it's a couple hundred years later the church is the catholic church and the rome is in crisis the pope goes and makes a again, a remarkable, crazy deal with Charlemagne the Great, which is to protect Rome, use his armies to go and conquer, and set up this army for the church. So now the church has its own army. It's not the Roman army like the Roman Empire. It's now the church has its own army, and Charlemagne becomes the first holy Roman emperor. They, they give him that name in order to flatter him basically into uh, protecting the church that kicks off the whole medieval period the 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 holy roman empire this time of very strong persecution the crusades the inquisition the sort of the iron fist of the catholic church sort of takes its shape and then it goes on to the Black Rider. The third rider is the Black Rider. I believe that's Ignatius Loyola and the establishment of the Jesuits. Um, you know, if you know how much influence the Jesuits have had, they're not part of pop culture, but they are very significant in history. Um, they are basically these a secret society within the Catholic Church. They have their own pope. Um, they are a military yeah, enforcers. order. Yeah, they're enforcers. They're an they're actual really military order. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Their, their leader is called the Jesuit general, and everyone has to take oaths in the Jesuits to um, be willing to die for them and stuff like that. And they went around, they led the, the counter-reformation to try to torture and destroy the reformation and stop that from, from succeeding. And they were also scientists. People don't know this. They are some of the greatest scientists in the world are Jesuits. And... I believe everyone thinks the Black Rider, if you, you look up prophecy, they think it has to do with famine. There is nothing said about famine in that 
rider. Instead, what it says is that he has a pair of balances in his hand, which can mean many things. I, th I think it means measurement, which is a very scientific process. That's where you get the scientific revolution in the 1500s. I believe Ignatius Loyola started the Jesuits in 1540, something like that, right at the same time that Protestant Reformation is kicking off. And I explain their connection to Los Alambrados, the, the, the predecessor of the Illuminati. Um, it was these uh, conversos, these Jews that were forced to become Catholics. They basically didn't identify with Judaism or with Catholicism, but they were very interested in sort of merging these ideas. Um, that was part of what Los Alambrados was about. Uh, ironically, you know, you can actually you can find Los Alambrados discussed in official Catholic encyclopedias, and Ignatius Loyola was called in for questioning for being one of them. Uh, they actually, the Inquisition asked Ignatius Loyola about his uh, connection to Los Alambrados, and again, Alambrados just means illuminated, so it is just the predecessor of the Illuminati. And what so, was the guy, there was another guy they burned at the stake for kind of those ideas. What was his name? Uh, I can't remember, but there was a lot. Yeah. It was kind of like the Los Alambrados were considered kind of like the Gnostics or the Illuminates, right? Something yeah. They like had that, this yeah. weird tendency for women to be in sort of these states of ecstasy and, and like, uh, seem like they were possessed. They claimed they were possessed by the Holy Spirit, but it seemed like they were possessed by demons and they would follow Ignatius Loyola around and, and, you know, um, he couldn't basically get rid of them. They were obsessed with him. So uh, Ign Ignatius Loyola was actually brought into questioning in front of the Pope or whatever, and he had to, I believe he made a deal to convert the Los Alambrados Secret Society to work for the Catholic Church. Instead of being its enemy, it would become its spy network. It would become its next vanguard to stop Protestantism because, again, it was at a crisis point. Each of these things has a crisis point. Constantine, Charlemagne, Ignatius Loyola, there's always a crisis and then a huge turning where a world power submits itself to the power of Rome and to the power of the Catholic Church, and then it gives it a new life, and it's prepared then to go for the next couple hundred years and fight off any sort of reform and any sort of... Um, challenges i explain how the age of the black rider is basically uh, culminates with the banking system the uh, gnostic science sort of occult science secret societies um, everything that we're seeing now we're basically living at the finale of the black rider this um, everything you want to point to the mysticism kabbalah sort of uh, Illuminati, Freemasonry, all these things, uh, controlling the banking systems that control the world. I believe that's in the, the black church. And the fourth one, sort of the most interesting one in some ways, because it keeps getting translated wrong, is pale horse. Um, I make very clear that it is actually supposed to be the green horse. And you can look that up very easily. I, I show the text. You can look it up on online resources very easily. The word, the Greek word that is used to describe the color of the horse is chloros in Greek, which is the same term they use to describe 
grass and trees and very green things. It's where chloroform comes from. And, you know, all these Greek, uh, all these words that scientific terms that involve green all have the term chloros in it. So it is the green horse. And I believe we are now entering the, the era of the green rider. And that's why we're seeing earth worship, but also depopulation because the power of the fourth rider the green rider is to kill 25 percent of the world a quarter of the world gets killed by the green rider and and it uses everything it uses the sword it uses famine it uses uh the, the greek word is thanatos it just means death i assume that means a invisible death you couldn't really track so that would be any kind of biological weapons that would be radiation that would be uh, poisoning anything that would be sort of a a subtle death uh, that you couldn't really see with your naked eye and then also the wild beasts of the earth which is sort of maybe hinting at genetically modified creatures or maybe it's a metaphor or something i again i don't pretend to know everything about this but um so this is what I, I'm thinking, is that we're getting into that point. The Green Rider. And, of course, the Pope is a Jesuit currently. He's the first Jesuit Pope ever in history. He is obsessed with the Green Movement. He's trying to push it as hard as he can. He talks about how capitalism needs to end. We need to have uh, complete social and consciousness reform across the world. We need to all unite behind the climate movement. I made a TikTok video on my account. It was actually the last video I made before I got banned for no reason. I didn't break any rules, but uh, I, I made a TikTok video showing the Pope doing a major conference around the COP26 uh, the climate event in Europe. He, he gathered all the world religious leaders together in the Vatican from Muslims and, you know, uh, Taoists and Hindus and everything, everything you could get his hands on. And they all signed a pact, a spiritual pact to push the green agenda, which means depopulation. It means decarbonization, deindustrialization, pushing the world back into some sort of uh, dark age is really what it is. Right, they, want, right. they want to recreate the dark ages. Like feudalism, like neo-feudalism, like a techno-feudalism. It's incredible. It is, and it's done in the name of green. It's done in the... It's actually amazing how much everything that is rising to power and taking over society and these institutions that you thought were permanent would never change, banks and militaries and top-level governments, they're just being bulldozed by this green movement and everybody has to start using this term green. And like I was going to, I failed to talk, uh, mention this, but Charlemagne and, and that whole system gave rise to the cardinal system. Cardinals always wear red. That is their specific color is red. Jesuits are known as the black priests. They are always wearing black robes. They are famous for wearing black all the time. And the, Pope of the Jesuits is actually called the Black Pope. If you've ever heard someone talk about the Black Pope, it's oh he exists. Of, there's a guy. There's a named guy out there. I forgot his name. Oh yeah, it's not a theory. It's yeah, it's no. an actual 
position. It's the Jesuit general. Um, I don't know who the current one is, but there's they always wear black. That is their specific color. So you have white. Arturo Sorsosa is the guy since 2016. He holds that position, the superior general. Right. And so you have white, red, then black, and now green. And I don't know if we're going to see an official green outfit for uh, a new priesthood, a new order, or anything like that for the Catholic Church, but actually they already have green robes for what they call ordinary days on the Catholic Church. So uh, this, what not, see, what the point here is that not only just that that's a theory about how you could connect world events to the biblical prophecy, but that God is the one that wants this to happen. He wants Satan's empire to expand. He wants it to get to a culmination point. It has to get bad before it gets good. And that is part of prophecy. It's not something to be terrified about. It's something that is just has to happen. And so um, from there, you get into just the whole rest of Revelation. That's like a couple verses in chapter 6, but it's like a thousand years of history. And then the, the timeline starts to slow down and become much more precise after that. It start, you can start to see actual specific events unfolding, and it really focuses back onto Israel and all these types of things. So um, that is sort of the, the starting point, the the history leading up to today. And then from there, I look at the future. I tie in a bunch of other prophecies. I don't know. I'm very curious what you think of it. I mean, there's a lot going in there. There's a lot to unpack in Revelation. There's, like you said, there's so many different themes and things going on. These writers, there's prehistory, like all Christians reference the, the war in heaven now. So it's really hard to figure out. There's the seven letters to the seven churches, right? So seven is, is repeated over and over again. And that's always right. mentioned, right? So then you have you have the seat of Satan at Pergamum. I mean, there's so much in the Book of Revelation that uh, to talk about that that has sprinkled through kind of a Christian practice. All much more recently, I think. It, I don't know how. I don't know if it was in the canon. I don't think. I don't know when it was put into the canon permanently, but I thought it was kind of on the edge for some time. Maybe you would know that. Um, I, I don't think I've ever. Heard, heard that Revelation okay. was out of the canon, um, okay. but I can see why some people would uh, would question it, challenge it. It was, uh, from what I understand, accepted as part of the, you know, the rest of the same canon. Of course, the Bible itself, as a collected group of books, you know, if that's what you mean, um, there there might have been different codexes and the Latins versus the Greek the Orthodox and the Catholic both had their own codexes and stuff that they were including the, the Apocrypha, for example, they include a bunch of stuff in the Bible that Protestants don't use. And so um, there, it may have been, you know, questionable to some people, but I think the mainstream for the mainstream point, it was always accepted. And there's just a question of what do you do with it? I mean, the Catholics obviously have their own take on it. Everyone has their own take on it. And I even, Crowley, even the occultists have the, their take on it. Crowley borrowed all that stuff, all the literal Satanist. So it's almost like they want to fulfill that too. There's like human beings who like, yeah, are not Christians doing this kind of stuff. But what's your kind of take? I mean, go ahead. No, I was just going to say, I think last time we actually had a quote from Barbara Marks Hubbard 
and this supposed quote that she had about how they were going to fulfill the pale horse, they were going to depopulate the planet. So we actually mentioned that even there, it's, it's yeah, they're definitely interested in it. And what's your kind of take? Jerusalem pops up in this book. I mean, that you have the Jews return uh, when took Jerusalem in what sixty seven was it? Uh, so, what's what's your take on kind of this? And I remember Paul, if I remember correctly, Paul mentions something about the Second Temple has to happen and certain things has have to happen. Right. Uh, so, just the the quick background on the temple: there, Solomon creates the temple. It lasts for for however many hundreds of years, and then. Um, when Babylon comes by, they destroy the temple. That's when the Jews go into exile into Babylon. That's all in the Old Testament. And once they get released from Babylon, they actually create the second temple, but it's very shabby compared to the original. That keeps going until the Greeks take over, and that's when Hellenization is happening in, in Israel and stuff. The Greeks, with Alexander the Great, they take over. There's the Greeks eventually destroy or defile the second temple to the point where Herod, King Herod, rebuilds it as this fortress that is sort of half temple, half fortress, so that it won't be destroyed again. That's what's there at the time of Jesus. So the second temple was the sort of this impressive Roman-style fortress at the time of Jesus. Jesus says you can tear down the temple. You don't need it anymore. That was extremely controversial. Um, his he would become the temple and, and everything. So the temple gets destroyed. The second temple gets destroyed in 70 AD by the Romans. And then it remains desolate for, you know, basically 2000 years. And then it still doesn't exist. There's no temple on the Temple Mount. Uh, the Muslims have their Dome of the Rock there. And so there's this very strong expectation now that any day now, uh, you know, Israel will basically reassert itself, take on the Muslims, destroy the Dome of the Rock, to, which would just trigger absolute, you know, hell on earth war, um, Armageddon type battle of Iran and all the Muslim countries. But uh, then they would build their third temple. And so, yes, it is it is definitely something that prophecy talks about there being another temple. And since it hasn't happened yet, how is that going to happen? Zionists are basically people who say, let's get the show on the road. Let's actually make it happen. Let's accelerate. Let's not try to avoid it. Let's embrace the fact that there's going to have to be a giant war and we're going to have to kill the Muslims. And I grew up hearing that kind of stuff very openly. Is like, let's just turn the Middle East into a big glass crater. Use the nukes if you have to. We don't care. Let's just make sure that we can build the the third temple and, and, you know, then Jesus will come back because that's actually a prerequisite. So they, they like that idea. And arguably that's, that's the theory of what George Bush and the neocons were trying to accomplish. Now, I think there's more going on there and there's a lot of deception there, but as far as revelation goes, it is actually very clear that there's a huge tribulation the Christians basically get wiped out, whether you think they get raptured or not. I make a, a very strong argument that there's no rapture for Christians. You go to heaven the old-fashioned way by dying. And the rapture event happens with the group that becomes the focus of the book. And it's called the 144,000 Israelites. There's 12,000 from the 12 different tribes that makes 144,000. 
And they're referenced basically throughout the majority of the book. It keeps going back to them. They have a special seal on their foreheads. They're not affected by the plagues and cataclysms that start to happen. And ultimately, Jesus comes back and visits them on the temple, in the temple. And so Revelation shifts focus from the Christian church to this 144,000 Israelites pretty hard. Um, it, it's pretty clear. And then they become the remnant, what Isaiah calls the remnant, that God would basically wipe out Israel, punish them, curse them, but he would leave a remnant which was allowed to experience all of these fulfillments so that what I expect, and if I, just to bring it back to the real world, how this might play out, you know, you would have a world war, conflicts, uh, the nations, specifically the sort of Catholic, Orthodox type nations, going against uh, Israel. Israel, you know, basically needs a savior. They need a deliverer of some kind. The man of sin, the Antichrist, comes in to try to be that guy. Uh, they they give him a bunch of power, but the 144,000 are sort of this small, relatively small remnant within there that worships God properly and doesn't go along with it. And then um, this is while huge earth-shattering cataclysms are happening, but like volcanoes erupting and, and earthquakes and uh, the whole world system being disrupted. And uh, ultimately, you know, they, the, the man of sin, the Antichrist, tries to take on Jesus. Um, and it seems like he's going to succeed. It seems that that's what the abomination of desolation is that Daniel talks about, is this Messiah comes in and confronts this evil ruler who comes in and seems to lose. And so one of the most controversial part theories in the book, although I make a lot of explanation around, I can't do it justice here, but is the idea that it um, it culminates with the abomination of desolation, which is this showdown between the Antichrist and Jesus. And it looks like Jesus loses. And that's what causes this sort of final satanic empire to believe that they are above God and they can do anything they want. This is all stuff that will happen after... I'm dead um, if my theory is true, so I'm not. Uh, I'm not expecting to see it myself. But the, yeah, the tribulation. Oh, I guess you were asking about Israel, so I'll just leave it there. Well, it just it's just kind of a complex uh, series of events that come in, right? So then there's like the so-called there's like some huge war in the Middle East, right? I don't know. I don't remember if that's in Revelation or not. And where is, is uh, Armageddon? Is that in the Revelation or is that? Uh... Yes, it is. The The battle is there. The, the thing is, it's sort of half there and it's half in like Daniel. And so you have to sort of jump between those two to get the full story. The reason why you won't seem that way when you're reading Revelation is because it talks about the whore of Babylon. And that's sort of the big mystery uh, that who is the whore of Babylon? Because the whore of Babylon is the one that gets destroyed by this great judgment and the nations turn against it and 
everyone wants to know what it is. I've seen so many documentaries saying that America is the whore of Babylon. It's a very common view that America is this nation that was supposed to be godly, but it became this horror that, you know, prostitutes itself with the kings of the earth. And it, it, it's the great evil of the world. That's a very common evangelical point of view. It's actually very hard to get them to consider anything else. Some people think that it's Rome and that it's the Catholic Church. I make the argument based on some very strong internal logic of revelation. I can, I can lay it out for you why that is actually the whore of Babylon is Israel and it is Jerusalem specifically because not current day Israel, the whore of Babylon is not an eternal archetype that's been around for 2000 years. It's that is an end time transformation that takes place because it's talked about as being the great city over and over again. The whore of Babylon is talked about the great city. Well, in revelation, it says, I'm actually going to pull up the verse right here. Yeah, please do. Um, Revelation says, when it's talking about the two witnesses, it's not verse, it's not chapter 16. The term actually comes up quite a bit. So um, if you look it up, you'll see. Right. I think everybody always said the, the, uh, Babylon, Lady Babylon was always Rome because they tied the seven hills to the seven hills of Rome, right? Isn't it? Right. Well, this is the thing. The, the whore of Babylon sits on seven hills and rides the beast. So you have the beast and you have the whore of Babylon. Those are two separate things. The beast exists way before the whore of Babylon. It has seven heads that are seven mountains. I believe that's Rome, is the beast. And it takes on these different forms throughout time. The whore of Babylon rides on it, which is a way of describing a partnership, an alliance. It it is carried by the beast. So what you would expect to see, to translate that, if, if my theory is correct, is what you'd expect to see is that Israel teams up with Rome in its various forms. Right now, America is sort of an extension of the Roman Empire. But it would team up and then there would be a clash between them eventually where the the beast basically decides i've had enough of you you've taken advantage of me that's when it turns and the nations turn against the whore of babylon to destroy it and that's what it describes so it's people just confuse that completely and they think the whore of babylon is the same as the beast um let's right, see here it's not, so, yeah it's not depicted at least in the iconography of the kind of pictures of the book of revelation. It's usually a lady riding some multi-headed beast, right? Right. With the the cup of abominations in her hand, right? I can remember that. Yeah. Okay. So revelation chapter 11 talks about the two witnesses. It says that they get killed by the beast so they're prophesying. They go to the temple of God. Again, this is, it, it mentions the temple of God as if it exists. So we, that needs to happen in order for the prophecy to be fulfilled. That's why Zionism has so much momentum behind it um, in sort of this, you know, evangelical sphere. Evangelicals are by far the biggest supporters of Israel outside of Israel itself. And so these two witnesses come by 
they are sending plagues on the earth. They are witnessing. We don't know exactly what they say, but they're obviously pissing off a lot of people. And then it says, when they finish their testimony, the beast that rises from the bottomless pit will make war with them and conquer them and kill them. And their dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city. And then it says that city is symbolically called Sodom and Egypt. And then get this, it says where their Lord was crucified. That's in verse 8 of Revelation chapter 11. You can look it up yourself. So these two witnesses worship Jesus, obviously. Their Lord who was crucified. That city is identified with the great city. So the great city is where the Lord was crucified. And then later on, it will keep mentioning the great city. The great city is split into three parts by this gigantic earthquake that sort of opens the defenses up so that the armies can invade it and destroy it. Um, later on, the Whore of Babylon is called the great city. Symbolically, spiritually, this meaning from God's point of view, it is called Sodom and Egypt. That's how bad it is. Both Sodom and Egypt were completely destroyed by God's curses and plagues and, and judged by him. And so there's this picture here of the two witnesses being in Jerusalem, which is where you would expect a prophet to be. Right. Jesus, Jesus actually says that it's not lawful for a prophet to be killed outside of Jerusalem. Outside Jerusalem, right. He says that right at the end, yeah. So you would expect that that is where these two witnesses would go. But it's called... Sodom and Egypt, where the Lord was crucified. So you can't get away from that. The Jerusalem, yeah. You can't it's a, Jerusalem is considered extremely evil by Jesus, according to this. Now, you could argue later on when this, these events are actually happening, at that time it's considered that evil. Maybe it's this whole time for 2,000 years, because guess what? The Jews largely rejected Jesus and you know, that's not a good thing, considering he was supposed to be their Messiah. I don't know. I don't speak for God, but I do know that when it's saying... He didn't saying say that, nice things in, when he made it Jerusalem. He was generally... Uh, he, he wanted the temple to be destroyed, and he wanted... He said, woe to you. Like, when he was getting led by the cross, it's like they were crying for him. And he said, don't cry for me. Cry for yourselves, because uh, what's going to happen to you is going to be much worse than what happens to me. So he was not pleased with that generation, and... And, uh, you know, arguably the last 2,000 years, the whole diaspora, this was a great punishment for them rejecting Jesus. And At least the witnesses... ones in Jerusalem, yeah. At least the right. people of Jerusalem. And so this is how you connect. And I don't see how you get around it. The city where the Lord was crucified, there's only one city like that. And so you it's can't direct. say that's Rome. Yeah, that's it's certainly not America. Yeah. And um, And so once you understand that, then you can look at this fascinating story of the whore of Babylon and why God is so concerned about it. You know, why would he even care so much about this, this whore of Babylon, if it's just some great pagan or Gentile city that gets destroyed, but if it's Jerusalem and then therefore Jerusalem serves as a dual purpose as Zion and Babylon, it has a dual identity. It's where God put his name. It is the promised city that he will eventually set up as being, the great center right. of the new Jerusalem, right? Well, yeah. So there will be a new one come from heaven. So I think course, your point, I think you make sense that the old the symbolic Jerusalem is not is optimal. 
Yeah, and I think it culminates all the the seven sealed book of prophecy that culminates in these trumpets, and then the trumpets are sort of this giant, like a trumpet would be. This is another thing nobody has ever talked about before. Why are why is it seals? Why are they trumpets? Why are they bowls full of wrath? They just ignore the symbolism. And I'm a big metaphor guy. When I read something, if you introduce a metaphor, I'm going to start thinking about it metaphorically. Why did you choose that metaphor? Why seals? A seal is meant to keep something secret. It's meant to lock something away so that no one understands what it is until after it happens. You break the seal. That's an irreversible event. You, you know, you can't put a seal back together once you break it. That's the whole point of it. And it's a, an act of secrecy. So it actually makes sense that the first seals would be a big mystery to us. The trumpets are not supposed to be like that. The trumpets are very loud. It's a warning. It's tied in with the ancient logic of war and the coming of something very huge and dangerous. And so after the Christian church is killed in the, in the tribulation, which I believe happens during the age of the green rider or current age, this, that's why I keep talking about the green world order. It's not just the new world order. It's this, green takeover of the new world order which wants sees humans as being a disease that need to be eliminated and they want their neo-feudalist age of aquarius um awakening to happen and so they the christians are standing in the way of that all happening i believe that happens uh we don't get a rapture which by the way is actually discussed in the bible it's one of the most interesting passages you have in in revelation chapter six I love explaining this to people. Um, the fifth seal, so you have the four riders of the first four seals. The fifth seal, the, the first seal that happens after that, it says that there's an altar in heaven where there's the souls of all of these martyrs. And they're crying out saying, hey, God, why aren't you judging the world? Why aren't you saving us? Why aren't you killing us? That's actually in the Bible in verses 10 and 11 of Revelation chapter 6. You know, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on the earth? And it says that they are given white robes and they're told to wait until the rest of their brothers and sisters are killed like they were. So the rapture believers are going to go to heaven. It's good news for them. Good, good job. You get to go to heaven. But they're going to be crying out and confused. They're going to say, why aren't you avenging us? And it actually predicts it in the Bible itself that they are going to be told to wait until their brothers and sisters are killed like they were. And so I don't, I don't blame people for believing in the rapture. I, I get that it's a complex, that's another complex thing. You have to jump to five different books of the Bible to piece together all the references to it. Um, but this is a kind of pop Christianity. It's a very convenient way to get through the difficult things. Like it's a panacea, like it's a psychological panacea. To especially say especially the pre-tribulation rapture. It's the pre-tribulation rapture means you don't even you don't even get a taste of the suffering. Even though Jesus keeps saying that you're blessed if they curse you, there you you get blessings in heaven if they uh, persecute you and that the world will hate you the way they hated Jesus. You're supposed to take up your cross. That's another thing we're clearly told. We're told that those who want to save their life will lose it. Those who lose their life for the sake of God's word will keep it. There's all this stuff about being blessed if you do actually suffer for the gospel. 
And instead of believing any of that or trusting that, they just say, well, God loves us, so he'll never let anything bad happen to us. I have this book here. It's my favorite book besides the Bible. It's a huge, thick book called The Martyr's Mirror. This is 1,600 years of martyrs who were killed, tortured, burned, alive, disemboweled, kept in dungeons, suffering way worse than anything you've ever heard in, in Hollywood movies. They were killed for the gospel. They didn't get a rapture, but we think we will because we're so special. You know, we get the, the free ticket where we don't have to suffer anything. Like this is, we're so ignorant about the history of the Christian church and what has already happened. And then you just have this idea of the, the big save at the end where we don't actually have to suffer. Um, I'm sorry, I don't think that's true. Obviously, this is just my theory. I could be wrong, but I make a very strong case for it in, in my book. And I really appreciate you letting me talk about it. Yeah, too. you make a case for a lot of stuff in this book. It's, we have barely covered you know, the first three chapters or something. There's a lot of information in here. Uh, unfortunately, I got to run. Maybe we could do a part two. But where can people find this book, Terry? Uh, thankfully, it is in a lot of places. The sort of the number one place is obviously Amazon. There's a paperback. There's a Kindle version if you want that. It's on Barnes and Noble if you don't want to support Amazon. I understand a lot of people don't want to support Amazon already. Um, so Barnes and Noble is pretty good. There's digital copies elsewhere. And if you want to list, listen to the audiobook for completely free, I have a podcast called the Not Done Yet Podcast. And I, I read it myself. So it's completely available for free online. If you don't want to buy it, you want to listen to it. I don't know how many uh, you know episodes it is, but you go there, you can listen to it and then decide if you want to support me and buy it or you think I'm full of it. I would love emails on this. I would love pushback on it. So far, everybody who reads it loves it and ends up saying this is maybe it's not perfect, but it's better than anything I've ever seen on Revelation so far. So that's why it has so many five-star reviews on Amazon. I thought it would get one-star reviews across the board, and I would have to defend it against everyone. But everyone who reads it actually thinks it's the best analysis they've ever seen. So um, decide so for yourself. Yeah. Listen to it. And yeah, people can see you at wolfpox.com, right? And the podcast is not done yet podcast i'll put a link to both of those in the show notes so people can check it out but terry thanks so much for your time again the book title is maybe everyone is wrong revelations conspiracy in the kingdom of heaven thanks so much for your time it means a lot to me thank you very much cheers